Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Our greatest strength, as we call on other countries to treat their citizens differently, or as we try to employ tools in the toolbox with other countries is our credibility and our observance of those principles. Hello, welcome to The Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is someone I've wanted to have on the show for literally years, um, Samantha Power. She was ambassador to the UN under Obama before that, a special advisor on the National Security Council and around mass atrocities and, and genocide. She is the author of a new memoir, The Education of an Idealist, the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning A Problem from Hell. And she just has had one of the most fascinating careers in foreign policy and government. Um, she was a foreign journalist, a war reporter uh, in Bosnia. She wrote this remarkable book on mass genocide and the world's inability or unwillingness repeatedly to intervene in them, uh, particularly its unwillingness. And then that book got her noticed by Obama's team. She became very close personal friends with Obama and then joined his administration and, and kept rising through it. And she has this very interesting, tense narrative to her career of somebody who came in with this fundamental critique of foreign policy and the way it was conducted in this a la carte fashion, the way America turned away from its moral commitments over made things overly complex when there was a right and wrong to them. And then in um, the Obama administration uh, had had actually moved to become a senior policymaker, uh, was in the room as decisions were being made on Syria, on Libya, on Yemen, um, on South Sudan, on all kinds of things that went well, that went poorly, um, that just went in the middle, on China, things that were not in the original ambit of a problem from hell. And so I've always wanted to chat with her about what she learned, right? Like what would moving from one to the other do? And so we do in here. And it's a, a fascinating discussion that is fundamentally about two things that I wanted to tee up because sometimes I think it gets a little in the weeds here. One is about just a question of complexity and foreign policy and how when do you have enough information to make a decision to act? And how does that information look when you are outside the system versus when you're in it? Um, and then the other is whether or not you can, given the complexity of the world, have the sort of principles-based foreign policy, uh, uh, sometimes we call it in this conversation or I call it like a moral-based foreign policy um, versus some of the other considerations that come into it. And when do you even know when you're having a conversation about a foreign policy decision that is around morals versus a foreign policy decision around strategy. In the long term, assuming you have a good strategies in that moral too. And so this is a, a, I don't know, I think this is a fascinating conversation about the real gritty nature of making foreign policy, which is something that's not primarily what I cover, uh, but is 
I think one of the hardest things you can genuinely like possibly do. Uh, so I appreciate her being here and being willing to engage on these issues. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is former Ambassador Samantha Power. Samantha Power, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. As I was reading, rereading Problem from Hell and reading the, the new memoir, it struck me that both books in a way are about human nature and what do people do in very different circumstances. And, and I think I wanted to begin with the committing of atrocities, which Problem from Hell is about and your work in the Obama administration was often about. After a lifetime working on this, why do you think people who one week are just normal people living in families and communities turn and commit genocide, turn and torture their former neighbors. Like, how do you explain that in human nature? Well, it's funny, as you were beginning there to pose the question, which is not one I've had before, I was thinking, okay, the the obvious connection with the two between the two books is I went into the Obama administration and I was put in charge of being his advisor on atrocity prevention as part of being his human rights advisor. And I took the toolbox that I'd identified in a problem from hell and then I transferred it. But as you were asking the question, I was thinking, actually maybe one of the through lines of the education of an idealist that is the answer to your question about human nature is centers on fear. And because I'm so struck that through history, virtually every perpetrator of evil, for lack of a better term, does so under the rubric of preemptive self-defense or self-defense, you know, that they're stoked into believing someone's coming after them or their children, usually in, in the case of mass atrocities, prior crimes, previous savagery is invoked. And so it has a certain credibility. There's something to, to tap into. Usually there's not always, but shrinking resources. So there's also a sense of potential deprivation. And, and, and so then when I connect that to one of the the points of my book is is sort of freedom from fear and the importance of freedom from fear as you make decisions. And even though Donald Trump is not a major character in the education of an idealist, he does appear during the Ebola crisis and does try to stoke fear. And indeed, I think that there have been studies now that show how important the Ebola crisis was for him in generating that fear and making people feel like there was a horde of Ebola-infected people that Barack Obama wanted to bring to the United States, um, and kind of both in A Problem From Hell, in communities that are ginned up into perpetrating, and in governance, in you know my more recent experience, when you have people on the outside or now who are running our country, but stoking fear I'm not sure we've cracked the code on how to resist that incitement or that, you know, there's something about if, it, you know, if you don't do, if you don't turn against group X, so now in our contemporary politics, let's say immigrants or, you know, that somehow there's a vulnerability for you that is here now in our context existential in terms of job and dignity um, and in cases, much more extreme cases of mass violence. Um, you know, it's it's put in life and death terms. So one of the things that that makes me think about, there's a line I love from Tanasi Coates um, back uh, years ago on his blog where he was talking about the narrative we often have about history that like, well, I never would have been a slave or I never would have been a slave owner or, and his line is that, 
you probably would have been. Like whatever it is, you probably would have been. And, and the question of history is to ask yourself why. Like what would have happened to me that I would have probably been part of this, both for, for good and for, for ill? The, it's rare that we are the exception, right? That's why they call it the exception. And yet the things that you write about are and, and, and worked on are so horrifying. Um, there's a line from your book, uh, from memoir, uh, that I just couldn't get out of my head after I read it where you're talking about these uh, father and son in Bosnia who were forced to orally castrate each other at gunpoint. And like I couldn't get that out of my head. And so, like what, what do you think led the soldiers to do that, right? Because they weren't afraid of those two people at that time. Like how do you explain that within, a, within your model of human nature? Because I'm sure these soldiers, right, they I'm sure had families they loved. And oh, I mean, it, I mean, maybe they were just sociopaths and maybe these two were, but I just – like yeah. what is happening to societies when they go into these paroxysms of total savagery? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in some cases there is an underlying propensity, right, for being a bully. You know, what in what in polite society would be merely a bully, um, but becomes in a conflict situation where, again, the narrative that you are imbibing with no counter narrative, you know, in your little echo chamber, you're being told that people of that ethnic group that you're now targeting are coming after you, your wife. You're being told about murders, massacres committed back in the Second World War, that the photos of those massacres are being circulated by the enemy group and the enemy group is coming again for your family. And so you're not merely, I mean, again, I can't get in the heads of the, the perpetrators for sure, but um but there is an idea of the excess cruelty and almost demonic acts of that nature are rooted not only in wanting to murder and to degrade, but wanting to ensure that the group never comes back again. And so there's a – to describe an act like that, I mean, how, yeah. that's as far as I can go, in, but there's still a huge gap. You know, I remember in, in Primo Levi, he used to write that when he would – um, when anyone went up to a concentration camp guard during the Holocaust and said, why, you know, varum, why, that the answer was darum. Why? Because. Why? Because. And so on one level, as we, as, as we seek to come up with this sort of causal picture and even give an account of fear and, and again, this, this, this myth of preemptive self-defense that the perpetrators of these crimes um, sort of seek shelter in on one level also something something gets unleashed that that you know transcends our our explanations and our everyday experience in a lot of the the worst crimes uh, I don't know if this is the good news or the bad news but um, alcohol or drugs are also involved and so so it's, it was interesting looking at the work of journalists who really dug into the Srebrenica massacre, which was very formative in my journalistic career and, and something I write about in the new memoir, just how many of the perpetrators of the massacre of 8,000 Muslim men and boys in just a few short days, mass executions, you know, bulldozers going in, digging the graves, lining men and very young boys up and then mowing them down the vast majority of people involved appear to have just been drunk out of their minds and just, you know, sort of numbing, trying to also distance themselves from what they knew they were doing. So in in that sense, there's, I'm, I'm not sure, again, how that relates to them 
distancing themselves from whatever humanity is left um, or, or numbing themselves from their own loss of humanity. So you're talking about the through line of these books being fear. And, and I want to say the through line of, of the conversation I want to have here is actually about how individuals operate in different structures around them. I think the most extreme being what happens when you go from just being a normal resident of a country to being part of a group that is committing genocide in a country, right? Which can happen in a couple of months, in a year, right? There is a some kind of phase that people shift through. But also so much is about how then does the world respond? How do people in different positions respond? And so what are the conditions under which people in other countries refuse to recognize genocide, refuse to recognize any kind of moral obligation to those that they could help, to those that they know are being slaughtered or driven from their homes, and to turn away? Like, why does that happen? I mean, I think that part of it is just, are you even seeing those who have been purged or killed as your equal, as your contemporary, as your fellow human. There's a powerful scene, I may, I may get it just a little bit off, but in Shoah, Cloud Landsman's masterful epic documentary, where Landsman goes into a Polish village from which all the Jews have been eliminated, let's say, and goes up to a woman and says, you know, in effect, where are your neighbors? And she just says, well, they left. And he says, well, what do you mean they left? And he just, she said, I don't know, they just left. And he says, well, how many? And she says something like 700. And then she says, or 7,000, seven something. <laughs> and it was, I just found it so telling. It was just um, seven something. I mean, as if, and each one of those individuals is a, is a person and was at the market with them and you know, in those days, you know, in whatever semblance of schooling there would have been in, in the village and so forth. And so I think that's that's part of it is it just the same ecology that makes the mass violence possible persists unless you have the alternative, which you saw in Rwanda and I suppose with the creation of the state of Israel, which is survivors getting to create their own history and their own narratives. And then that being a weight to counteract, um, you know, to rewrite the history books or to write uh, the history um, as it was experienced by those who were victims of, of genocide or mass atrocities. Another way to pose the question is, when people reckon, why do they reckon? Yeah. You know, and, and often it's because they lose. <laughs> I mean, that's certainly, there was no societal appetite in post-war Germany to grapple with what had happened, no embrace of the Nuremberg process, you know, shocked, shocked about what's been going on. I mean, it was years later, you know, the rebellion of the next generation really taking to task the parents' generation. I mean, it's a, co a complicated history, and I, I don't mean to simplify it, but in Rwanda, I mean, the reason you have Gachacha and, and these reconciliation, these accountability hearings that were presided over for many years with the more than 100,000 perpetrators who were involved in murdering nearly a million people is the victims of the genocide, as represented by a rebel army, took over the country and insisted on that process. They could have gone in a different direction. They could have lined everybody up and, and done mass executions. I mean, there were certainly some, I'm sure, who were arguing for that. Knowing that everybody would be living side by side, they tried to create this very imperfect but pretty important mechanism for having victims stand up and, and confront those who 
murder their loved ones and having perpetrators take responsibility to greater and lesser extents and then be sentenced according to their level of remorse and so forth. And then there's the question of people in other countries. And a lot of your work, both as a journalist and a writer and then obviously as a policymaker, about when does, say, America look at something and say, this is our responsibility. And it strikes me that there are kind of three levels of ascending honesty that happen here in terms of excuses, right? There's like the level of we don't know, right? Or we don't want to know, which happens. We don't want to look at what is happening in another country. And there's a level of it's not our problem, which on like you can make an argument for, but you know, I think if you take a more uh, universally moral view is hard to hold and is something we often regret saying later. Um, then there's the issue kind of at the top level, which policymakers often confront of, it's too complicated. And is that fair? Those seem to be sort of like the three waypoints of figuring out how to not respond. Yes, I think it's actually a pretty helpful taxonomy, but I would say that the categories are pretty permeable because you can reverse engineer it as well. Uh, if you believe that it's too complex, your impulse to quote, no, I mean, to really dig into the facts is much less if you decide that it is your problem, that even if you can't do everything, you're not going to stop something in a foreign land, you know, whose culture you may not be familiar enough with to be able to, you know, end the violence, but you think that there might be a few things you can do, your impulse to dig in and, and understand better which tools at reasonable risk you can employ is much greater. And what I, I write about in The Education of Idealists is not only the culture shock of going from being a critic and a scholar of this kind of stuff into the situation room and the new crazy bureaucratic language and the access issues of suddenly being separated from my friend Barack Obama, who now had all these layers and, and this big bubble around him. I write about all of that. Um, but I also wrote about what it was like to be empowered by him to know, to do everything in my power to know and to brief him and his national security cabinet, and then to be hungry to know are there low-cost things that you can do to make things better, which isn't the same as um, you know announcing to the world wherever there's mass atrocity, America's going to police that. And, you know, as we draw our troops down from Iraq and Afghanistan, we're going to entangle ourselves. It's nothing like that. It's no. Part of knowing is trying to get your head in the complexity and to just acknowledge that it's super complex. I mean, if something rises to the level of people going after their neighbors on ethnic, religious grounds, tribal grounds, for lack of a better phrase, um, in, in some places, it's pretty complex. <laughs> like, I mean, there's no, that's not an alibi. That's a fact. And so then the question is, how do you marry your status as a world leader and your ability to catalyze other countries to put pressure on different actors with that complexity? How do you do as much good as you can at reasonable cost? And, you know, in A Problem from Hell, I wrote about, you know, the Khmer Rouge's genocide or Saddam, Hussein, Saddam Hussein's genocide against the Kurds and the chemical weapons attacks. And, you know, my view was... On, this, on Hussein's genocide was, you know, the least we can do in the face of this kind of systematic destruction of the Iraqi Kurdish population is not double our assistance to his regime. <laughs> and I, I quote in A Problem from Hell, and it, it, you know, I saw things like this, of course, even in the Obama administration, but, 
you know, cables that one cable that read human rights and chemical weapons aside, comma, <laughs> our interests run roughly parallel to those of Iraq. And so my objective in going to work for President Obama was not to I would love to, you know, be able to snap my fingers and rid the world of evil, but that's not the world we live in, right? I mean, so the question was how by knowing and by knowing early and by elevating early can you open the toolbox because we believe also in coalitions and because Obama quickly tried to reestablish America's standing with our allies and with other democracies and and even with countries whose values we don't share very quickly moving also to bring other countries on board because what you see often is perpetrators taking crimes of any kind, even even corruption, uh, but certainly also for mass atrocity, they take refuge in the knowledge that different countries, different actors in the international community will back them. And so to me, it's not some cold realism that has you acknowledging constraints in the world and limited bandwidth for policymakers and the and even the limits of different tools in the toolbox, but it's to recognize actually the opposite is the opportunity you have if you seek out the information early, if you mobilize other countries, if you put pressure before it has unraveled uh, to such an extent that there's that there's no going back. The critique I, that you talk a bit about in the book and, and that you're sort of ready for here is, well, in Problem from Hell, you said X. And then like in the Obama administration, Y happened. And like, what would old Samantha think of new Samantha or current Samantha? And I do think that there are tensions in these two views. But the thing I want to explore a bit is what if both of them were right? So I think Bosnia and Syria, and I'm not a foreign policy expert, but I think Bosnia and Syria, and particularly the way you describe Bosnia and Problem from Hell and the way Syria gets described, have interesting parallels, particularly around this question of complexity. Like you write in The Problem from Hell about the way U.S. policymakers tried to stay out of Bosnia, its ancient ethnic hatreds, it's a civil war, using complexity as a shield. And in Syria, I think you write about the complexity of that and experience the complexity of that more sympathetically. And what I was wondering, thinking about both of those, is what if both things are right? What if the complexity is used both as a dodge, but also it's true? Like, how do you think about the Bosnia-Syria dynamic in terms of, of that fundamental dimension of it is true on the one hand that a complicated situation can be a reason not to intervene, and on the other hand, that if you let complexity be a reason not to intervene, you can always justify not intervening? Well, I guess I just don't think there's an algorithm. I mean, I think it's about looking at the facts at hand. And in Bosnia, and granted, I was there as a war correspondent and very much influenced by what I was seeing all around me. I mean, you know, the massacres that were being carried out as NATO planes flew overhead. But you're talking about a country of 4 million people in the heart of Europe. There were other dimensions there as well, where Russia, of course, in light of the end of the Cold War, was in a, let's call it a recessive posture and not, yes, of course, pro-Serb in, in some respects and sort of towing that line rhetorically, but no skin in the game really in that in that regard. And so when it came to relative international unity, that's one dimension of the question of complexity. Do you have it? And Again, everything's relative, but yes, certainly relative to today, uh, that was present there. When it came to having NATO relatively united around the need to deal with a problem in Europe, 
that also is in terms of international actors that was present. And when it comes to just a small country, and that was complex enough, as you note, domestically in the United States, not a lot of enthusiasm. Um, so there's also the question of, of U.S. public opinion and how that relates to what you feel you're capable of doing, but also capable of sustaining. Um, by the time the use of force is contemplated, and even by the time the Syrian opposition start asking for things like a no-fly zone, which is quite late, you already have terrorist groups and just innumerable factions, the names of which we can barely keep up with. I mean, there's complexity and there's complexity. I'm not saying that if I were in the situation, had been in the situation room in my early 20s or even if Bosnia were something happening today that as a policymaker, I wouldn't have deemed it complex. I'm sure it would have seemed complex. But I do know that had I been going from a Bosnia meeting to a Syria meeting, I would know the difference. I mean, it was, it's a, it's a, to me, just radically different, particularly with what U.S. policymakers had learned. And remember in the Situation Room during the Obama years, most of the generals and uh, Defense Department officials were people who themselves had served in Iraq. Many of the diplomats in the room had served tours. Aid workers had served tours. I mean, there was a ton of Iraq-specific familiarity, and Syria is not Iraq, but there are dimensions, at least on the sectarian front, that were quite similar. But it's a big ideo ideological question here. I think it was, actually, in this way that when you wrote A Problem from Hell, and I was I, I read A Problem from Hell, and... I just I remember being sort of a young person interested in foreign policy and the def the definitional context of that era being the horrible things that happened because we didn't intervene. And then the Obama administration is an administration built upon the horrible things that happened because we did. Right? I mean it is a it is a 180 in like the kind of context that young liberals thinking about foreign mm -hmm. policy have. And I think one of the the big questions about that is how much do you think we are governed by the most immediate foreign policy lessons we have as opposed to the situations that you're facing in the moment? Well, I remember Madeleine Albright saying, I think, to Colin Powell at one point in one of their confrontations in the 90s, you know, you're from the Vietnam generation, I'm from the Munich generation. Yeah. Um, so it's a, a kind of analog to what you're describing. I mean, certainly, I think... <laughs> Um, I mean, it seems so ridiculous in retrospect, but I think that one of many reasons for the Bush administration's hubris in going into Iraq and the, this kind of idea that we're just going to be greeted as liberators and it's all going to be so very tidy, crazily, I think the fact that Bosnia, the Bosnia intervention, which again was in such a different context, Kosovo in 1999, four years before the invasion of Iraq, even little East Timor, a country of one million people where there was an Australian-led multinational intervention, um, there was just a sense, I mean, crazily, right, that those three countries or entities or triggers, um, that, there, that you could have learned from them that it would go A-OK -okay in a country like Iraq, particularly if you don't do any planning and, and don't understand the country to begin with. So I think that it's a real factor, and Robert Jarvis and others have written about it. What I will say is you're completely right that Iraq was uh, is uh, the defining foreign policy mistake, I think to this day really of our, of our of our time. But I you know, in the debates, as I remember them, and they're not that long ago, uh, over the course of the decade uh, that I was with, 
Senator Obama, then candidate Obama, then uh, President Obama, I mean, he was also gripped by the question of Rwanda and why, you know, again, when we could have at least just allowed the peacekeepers to stay or reinforced the peacekeepers or done radio jamming or these other questions. And, and I tell the story in the book of how when he um, first reached out to me, he had read A Problem from Hell. I mean, this was the candidate who had come to prominence in large measure because he'd opposed the war in Iraq when it was polit a politically popular war and and seemed potentially like political suicide for him as a candidate. And yet what he honed in on in our first dinner again, which I describe, um, was systematically the question of why do decision makers disregard human consequences? And you can disregard them or or not sufficiently rate them in a Rwanda circumstance where, you know, again, not one editorial board, certainly not one NGO, not wouldn't have been me had I been stateside. I was in Bosnia at the time. But nobody was advocating that U.S. troops would go to Rwanda. It was more kind of like how weird that we can't look back and say we did diplomacy or we tried to rally the African countries. And, and so Obama was very intrigued by that. And then Iraq actually is a second data point of how you go in and you're not thinking through consequences, either for your, ultimately for your own soldiers sufficiently, but also for the Iraqi people. And um, and so he he actually, from the very beginning, was not looking at these as, you know, one analogy replaces another, but both as symptoms of a systems failure on one level. And then over the years I was in the administration, I mean, again, to me, the, the, I know we're talking, you want to talk about mass atrocity and genocide and, and um, I'm happy to continue doing that, but I mean, I think the other dimension you make me of sound this, so fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm happy to stay um, in this dark place, um, which which uh, is, I mean, it is both important because so many lives are at stake in what we're talking about, but I think it is also reflective of of a larger set of challenges that can explain sins of commission as well as sins of omission, and what. President Obama tried to have me do when I was working at the White House uh, for the first four years, and then when I was UN ambassador, is to it went well beyond you know who's going to talk about victims of of mass atrocities. It was who in the room is going to be the person who's you know just insisting that human consequences be discussed, be brought to bear. Um, and again, that doesn't give you a panacea for for Syria. I mean, or or even how to you know after we've through using the toolbox and being very energetic and creative, helped birth the country of South Sudan, and you know extract that country from a country that had perpetrated genocide against its people, and then not two years later it unravels into its own campaign of mass atrocity. Again, these are indigenous forces that are far bigger than us, but. His desire was to see us, you know, whether we're talking about how we draw down from Afghanistan and Iraq and get out, or how we talk about what in the toolbox we can do um, on South Sudan or on Central African Republic or on Libya, you know, a very controversial case, are is a factor that we are discussing the welfare of people in the country uh, and and as best we can, given the complexity and given the limits of what we know and and our intelligence, can we even assess that? Do we even have the 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 insight and the 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 facts to speak credibly internally even about those questions and and 
the answer to that depends very much on where we're talking about at what time. But then as we think through what we're doing, how do we think through the consequences more broadly for our foreign policy and for our legitimacy and for coalitions or for sustaining domestic support on something we need to do to to, uh, continue to pull us out of the economic recession? I mean, so consequences, it just starts the conversation. And there's so many axes on which you're probing. But all he was just insistent you know, let's think of the range of tools and not be binary about it. And let's make sure that the human consequences of what we are doing or not doing are are part of what we're of what's in the mix. And that, that sounds so intuitive and why not? And it's so obvious. And but I think that is something that did unite Rwanda and Iraq. I think that's a good point to stop for for a quick break. We will be right back. So one, I think a, another example of this playing out is you give a pretty interesting description of the debate you and President Obama had about whether or not to recognize and push Turkey to recognize the Armenian genocide. And, and Obama was speaking there. And this is a big part of a problem from hell, the story of the Armenian genocide, which is both not stopped by the world, but is not then subsequently even been recognized by much of the world. It's a place where the victor has gone to write much of the story. And your frustration and disappointment and a kind of like tense conversation even the two of you have over it. And you frame Obama's position on this, I think, fairly as he says to you, I'm trying to help the Armenian people now. And if I do this, it's going to push the Turks back and we're going to be in this worse position again. And that seems like a like an almost like a perfect example of how. I don't know who's right. Like one reason I'm not coming into this interview in like a thundery way is I don't feel like I can adjudicate any of these (laughs) well. But on the other hand, I am both like compelled by the moral clarity of the position that we should recognize the Armenian genocide, that a foreign policy, as you have written before, has to be built on honesty. And then the position that if you're worrying about the human cost, well, the humans are here now. And it's not crazy to try to be pragmatic. And like, I think you have a very fair description of your debate in this, but you don't really reflect on it that clearly in the memoir. And I'm curious, how do you think about that one? I mean, this was the first example for me when I got into the White House of the old Samantha and the and the person in the new role not squaring off because I was still the old Samantha. I was still advocating as if I was outside. Um, indeed, I, I went back to some column I'd written in order to formulate my arguments, you know, before I went into one of the key meetings on the question of whether to recognize the Armenian genocide. So I was even reading the old Samantha to empower the the new Samantha. But what I found frustrating and what I, I think I do reflect on in the book on this, or I hope I hope this is clear in the end, is it gets to what we talked about earlier around the sort of doom loop associated with mass atrocities. If you know it's too complex or that we don't have a role, you don't necessarily go fact-finding very energetically, and thus you miss the opportunity to do small things, I think, that might at least save some lives. In this instance, because the entire national security establishment would but just reflexively, even without conversation, want to be putting a thumb on the scale in favor of the relationship with Turkey, a NATO ally in a country bordering Iraq as we were trying to draw our troops down from Iraq and we have soldiers in harm's way in Iraq. You know, we we went in to this question of whether we fulfill the campaign promise that Obama had made to the Armenian American community with it being a kind of chronicle foretold for most. I mean, it was everybody saying, why does why does Samantha want to have a meeting? Like it's so clear how we have to land on this. And so I guess my first 
point of retrospective and even at that time contemporary judgment is you have to have fair process. You know, there's, there is a community of Americans who believed us. You know, I made a stupid video <laughs> which I, where I completely – it never even dawned on me that we wouldn't fulfill the promise that candidate Obama was making. And, and that's where – even though I think generally this is not a book about illusions, you know, getting overtaken by disillusionment. But, you know, there are moments like that that are naive, you know, where I just I'm, – I'm insufficiently reflective, I think, on the front end of what will happen when the, the candidate who's argued we have to get out of Iraq is in a position of also having to, you know and, – and so maybe on the front end I should have thought about it more, um, but I think I couldn't have known prospectively. I think he wouldn't have known prospectively. It wasn't like he's like, let's say these things and then I already know that it's going to be fraught when I get in there. But as a process matter, and I know it sounds woefully wonky, um, but you have to debate it because there's there are another set of real individuals, as I say in the book, some of whom are in their last years of their lives who have survived or who are the children of survivors. There are people who mobilized on behalf of this candidate. And, you know, it's not a small thing to break a promise. I mean, as a moral matter, but even as a even if we want to be Machiavellian about it as a political matter. But then separate from that, I think it is unbecoming at best and I think demeaning and discrediting at worst to have U.S. diplomats saying things they know to be untrue. And so that is an argument that had the the, the meeting occurred where the president, as normally is the case, you know, heard both sides of the argument from the sort of more traditional national security perspective and the kind of here and now perspective. Um, that's a version of the argument I would have made. But the last dimension of it was that President Obama, when you quote him as you did, of course that's a, a powerful argument. I mean, you know, who's not for privileging the lives of, of people today over people who can't still be saved? I mean, that's, I think, a, a, a truism of sorts. But my point was that there was no evidence that the Armenians of today were going to be benefited from not meeting our promise. And so, you know, I think had that debate occurred and and the president said, look, it's all about our troops in Iraq, you know, that's the interest at stake here. And I'm going to sit down, I'm going to meet with Armenian American groups, and I'm going to explain that because they're Americans too, and they care about our soldiers in harm's way. That would have been a very, um, I mean, I would have been, I still think that the, that we have more leverage over Turkey than we acknowledged in the debate. And I, st I still would have made the argument I think that I made. But that was not what the president was sold, I think, by some of his advisors. He was told, if you don't recognize or if you punt, let's say, which is, a, you know, once you don't do it at the beginning, it was clear to me that we would never uh, recognize the genocide over the life of our term. Um, but you will actually help living Armenians. And by the way, and this is true in all of our lives, when there's a kind of moral dimension, as the, and, you know, a lot of policy issues don't have that, but this, because it was a promise made, because there were known individuals to whom that promise had been made, you know, what I notice in government, much as I notice in my own life, is when you're trying to neutralize a moral argument, you rarely go to the strategic. Right. You go to another moral argument, right? So so that's why I think it was framed in the way that it was. I think that's what he latched onto. I think that made him uh, more comfortable with the decision because it didn't seem like crass geopolitics. It seemed like an actual weighing of lives. But I, we had 
huge amounts of information that indicated that Turkey was only in this dialogue with the Armenians to get through the date in which Obama was supposed to recognize. And so I just, I thought there was a short changing of evidence that this was a ploy. And so I didn't see it in the start. It wasn't like save the Armenians today or not. I mean, that would have been hard if that was a real, if there was a real process underway. But sure enough, as soon as the Turks got through April 24th, the Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day, this normalization in quotes uh, fell apart. The, the reason I bring this one up is that um, I think it's a really interesting example of one of these big, broad tensions. So you had written this piece for the New Republic a while back that I came across while we were doing prep for this. Um, and you're talking about Bush's foreign policy and Clinton's foreign policy and sort of Bush's having a foreign policy of principles built on bad decisions. And uh, Clinton as having a foreign policy of basically no decisions, even if the principles were, are, were often more moral. And the thing you say in that is that consistently in America, the problem is, is that we have an a la carte foreign policy. That instead of operating off of a consistent moral framework, we kind of hit each thing individually. And then when you're doing that, then it's very easy to talk yourself out of any one of them or into any one of them. But we become a very inconsistent moral player. It becomes easy to fool ourselves, to talk ourselves into, well, yeah, that might be the big – honesty is a big moral idea. But in this case, well, there's these negotiations about Armenian you know, recognition and so on. And so I guess the complexity question I'm getting at here is – I like what you just said, that you always rebut a moral argument with a moral argument. And so when you're dealing with this question of can you have a moral framework for policy or do you always end up in this a la carteism, I'm not sure who's right um, between sort of the the older arguments you made and then what you know happens in the Obama administration because I'm not sure that you can even – easily unwind which one is a moral foreign policy. It just seems that when people are in the administration, almost by necessity, that the set of considerations widens so much that it becomes very hard to say just what the underlying moral framework is, because you can bring in anything to it and you're still making a moral argument. Well, to be very clear, moral arguments are very rare in government. So I'm not sure exactly. Is that true? You feel that moral arguments as such isn't to say there isn't a moral underpinning. I mean, I don't, again, our terms yeah. can lose meaning here at a certain point. But to me, dedicating yourself as President Obama and his other advisors did 24 7 to um, saving the, the American economy, I mean, that's for the sake of the American people. Is that an economic argument or is that a moral argument? I mean, you're trying to. You're trying to, I mean, people are are in desperate straits, you know, losing their homes, losing their jobs, losing their dignity. But it's, but you wouldn't be, you know, when Larry Summers and Tim Geithner and Barack Obama are sitting around and thinking what to do about the car industry, it would be talking about saving the car industry. It wouldn't be that, although actually there there were examples of 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 people pulling in very specific individual sort of stories. I mean, I guess that's why I put it in terms of human consequences rather than morality. Like, again, I didn't say and wouldn't say in a government meeting, hey, you know, haven't you read the Ten Commandments? <laughs> you know, it's it's wrong to tell a lie or it's wrong, you know, to promise one thing and do the other. Um, you know, it just, instead, it's, it's about credibility and it's about your standing. It's about your b- ability to be, to be heard also, when you're promoting human rights or when we're promoting accountability, let's say, which is something we do both because 
we believe that people who perpetrate crime should be held accountable, but also because we believe when they are incapacitated in a society, it means they're not out there killing people and raping women and, and recruiting child soldiers, and thus the society is more stable and that, you know, the benefits accrue to us. And so I guess you become kind of ambidextrous, if that's the right word, or you sort of toggle among arguments in a way uh, when you're in these meetings. And and even though this now sounds very um, post-government of me, I mean, because I had interviewed hundreds of U.S. officials for a problem from hell, that dimension of of what policy debates look like, I think I was I was prepared for. But I think you know some some arguments about what to do have a very salient strategic dimension. I mean, take Libya, right, which is was one of the um, hardest decisions that we confronted, and really where the president decided to do what he did. I think it was probably fifty one forty nine in in him tipping toward you know, responding to the British and the French and deciding to go forward with a civilian protection mission, which then, of course, uh, dragged on and and I think arguably morphed into something else. But um, Well, for, for those who are not yeah, experts on Libya, please, what yeah. do you think it morphed into? Well, it, it the as I describe in the book, the challenge was the entire world rallied around the idea of a civilian protection mission, something that people don't remember today very well because it's, of course, now understandably, given how Libya looks, a very controversial set of decisions. But at the time, even Russia and China uh, allowed a UN Security Council resolution to go through, which had in it all necessary measures language, which is code in UNEs for uh, using military force to protect civilians, as had been done to help the Kurds of northern Iraq in 1991, as had been done in Bosnia. And so this was the resolution. Everybody knew what they were signing on to, and NATO uh, ended up being the implementer of the resolution. But after months of trying to uh, first preventing the takeover of towns that were controlled by the opposition, so arguably averting very serious civilian casualties and killings in those towns, you then run into the challenge of Gaddafi continuing to be targeting civilians and the terms of the UN mandate not being fulfilled, but also if you're Barack Obama or if you're any of the the leaders who were involved in the mission, you didn't sign up for regime change. That wasn't part of, I mean, that was the last thing uh, on anyone's mind. But how do you realize the terms of a civilian protection mission when the leader of the country refuses to negotiate? And so what I was starting to say though, that so that's that's what it morphed into is something, it wasn't even a regime change mission, it was just an, a lasting civilian protection mission, which meant that armed elements on the ground themselves who were in the regime change business, you end up, the, the distinction ends up getting blurred um, in ways that now are something that Russia and others have used to say, civilian protection will never stay contained when it's the United States, it will always be regime change, which I think on the basis of Gaddafi's actions, um, you know, that that is what happened in in that sense and that the opposition, again, moved in that direction. But what I was just starting to say, because you were talking about the language of government, is in the Situation Room, as that was debated, and it was a very divided room, and basically everyone's argument from where I sat, just as a backbencher and, and as a mid-level official, but all the arguments on the other side were reasonable arguments, and they were also on one level, moral arguments and strategic arguments. Um, so meaning those who thought that we just didn't have a national interest in Libya, 
okay, if he's going to um, lay siege to Benghazi, yes, there may be 500,000 people there. Yes, it may be a protracted siege. Yes, it may be bloody, uh, but kind of, you know, we're overextended. We're in the process of drawing down from Iraq, and we're going to soon be drawing down from Afghanistan. There's an overstretched dimension to this. And I mean, is it a is it a national security argument or is it a moral argument when you take note of the fact that our pilots are on their fifth and their sixth tours? I mean, that's a really important argument. At the same time, it was early days in the Arab Spring, which pe- which also is hard to remember now. Um, and Tunisia and Egypt had both seemed to resolve themselves peacefully and given way to democratic transitions, none of which were going to be easy. And Egypt, of course, very quickly went off the rails. But at that time, those were actually trending positively, it looked like. And, and who would have thought that Mubarak would give up power really without bloodshed? And so suddenly Gaddafi comes along and he's employing these, these vicious tactics. Every other Arab leader we know is looking to see not only how Gaddafi acts and what he achieves within his borders, but also how the rest of the world responds. And so again, is it a moral argument or a strategic argument to believe that nonviolent responses to peaceful protests uh, are preferred <laughs> from the standpoint of the U.S. interests. And and so anyway, I, it's just, I think, not as binary as it can seem from the outside. So Obama's called the Libyan uh, intervention the worst mistake of his presidency. Well, what he said was not that, although it's widely understood to be what he said, and so you're not alone. But what he said, in fact, was that he um, that the worst mistake of his presidency was, quote, failing to plan for the day after what I think was the right thing to do in intervening in Libya, end quote. So if you could like, rewind the clock and knowing what we know now, what would you have told him to do in Libya? Like, what would that kind of planning have looked like? What should what should have happened after there's an effort to protect um, against the massacre and that effort is successful? And then what? I guess when I look back, it is as the civilian protection mission is being executed, was there a high-level, sustained, no kidding, and when I say high-level, I mean Secretary of State-level, diplomatic push, summoning African leaders together and saying, we've got to get on the same page. We have to end this peacefully. We are involved in a military mission, but we need a diplomatic mission of equal standing, import, heft, which is, you know, I mean, imagine what that takes in light of what a mili- what the use of military force is in a country and how dangerous and, and unpredictable that is. And so while I document in the book and others have, have detailed in, at far greater length, but that there was, um, d- there were diplomatic efforts during this period, you know, there's no substitute for evolutionary change, pacted transition, rather than the vacuum and then people kind of descending to fill that vacuum. You know, Obama and I have gone back and forth a little bit since he left office about even the quote that that I just read about the, the planning failure because a major challenge was that for all of the divisions in Libya, you know, within the religion of Islam, the, the secularists and then the political Islamists and, and the tribal divisions and the regional divisions, there's so many divisions in Libya. But... The one thing everyone, no matter what loyalty they had, agreed upon was that there should be no international presence in Libya. And so in some sense, what the intervention 
by NATO produced was a day after. And then at that point, there was a sovereign, I mean, I, I think you could even call it a consensus that was to be managed by the Libyans. Now, that was on the heels of having institutions that had been decimated by Gaddafi over the years and not a readiness to come together and a very much, just like in Egypt, a kind of winner-takes-all mindset by different factions within it. Um, so I guess that, to me, the fact that Gaddafi's downfall was the violent, it was his use of violence, of course, for many, many months, and then his violent overthrow and the kind of vacuum and the... Um, I mean, again, it didn't start as chaos, but the the quickly unfurling chaos. I, you know, I think it, that that was the window. Was in fact before Gaddafi left office. I think to get something more packed. But you know, that the UN has been attempting to do that for all the years since Gaddafi's fall. So I'm not saying that that either would have been a silver bullet. To me, the big question that these two books explore is that what was appealing about a problem from hell for a lot of people, and I think particularly a lot of young people is the idea that you could have this foreign policy with just moral clarity of you don't let people kill their own citizens. Like you don't, I'm not saying that was the right interpretation, but I'm saying that that is an interpretation and that the drama in some ways of of the memoir and of the Obama administration is that you wrote it, he read it. I think this is actually administration Ben Rhodes, others of people who had really absorbed these lessons. And it's still just incredibly, incredibly complex. And even as we look back now, it's like, was that the moral foreign policy? Was it the strategic foreign policy? Just what does it say about the question of what what are the possibilities for a morally consistent foreign policy? Um, not the idea of like that it rebuts a problem from hell. Just what is the like in the tension between the two? Like what should someone conclude if they want to be a foreign policymaker someday? I guess to me, the the moral and the strategic are so intertwined, or the, our values and our interests are so intertwined that. Even in writing A Problem from Hell, you know, I wrote about the ways in which what for me was lived in my 20s as help these people who are being killed. It will not cost you greatly um, in the sense that these are this is a tin pot army that's carrying out these crimes. Help, you know, the, the kind of, I suppose what you're referring to as a kind of moral summons, but that same battleground was where... Al-Qaeda had training camps and people passed through and they got hardened and then they went off and and um, it was a place of radicalization alongside, um, again, this moral catastrophe of rape camps and concentration camps and so forth. And it's not always that intertwined or that linear, but, you know, on Syria, it's, it's, it's another example of that where 500,000 people are killed, but also uh, half the population is displaced millions to neighboring countries as they saturate the camps and the and the neighborhoods of those neighboring countries they then make their way further afield into Europe and have among many factors but a a dispositive effect in the Brexit vote which will change the face of Europe for the future if it goes forward arguably made immigration in our country far more salient, um, allowing Donald Trump to capitalize on that. So what can seem, again, confined in that way, I mean, this doesn't get to your question. I mean, I, I, I never have been um, a, a very doctrinaire person. I mean, I think having constraints and recognizing those constraints is also part of being both moral and strategic. I mean, 
having priorities and not trying to do everything at once is is not immoral. It's it you you know in other words, if you're not bringing um, boundaries or consideration of consequences to bear, if you're just a Kantian, you know, mm-hmm. saying it's a categorical imperative, you have to go. I mean, how moral is that? What is that going to produce? You know, something that doesn't take account of consequences. So, you know. Uh, I think that it's extremely important that the United States, especially now in the in light of China's rise, but sort of come back to first principles and recognize foundationally how important the health of our own democracy is as we seek to exercise leadership in the world, how important it is to at least aspire to be consistent in our invocation of our values and of human rights when we then do, provided we can get our democracy back together, a big if, um, but when we invoke human rights, how important it is to do so in as consistent a way as possible. And that enhances our legitimacy. Um, it takes away the the counter arguments of those that we might be critiquing. So when we are inconsistent between what's happening in Egypt or Saudi Arabia on the one hand, because we're aligned with them in some fashion, or they're our partners in different ways. And then we are sounding off about human rights abuses in Venezuela. It just it just means that our language and our policies and our ability, I think, to summon people to our side, I think, is blunted by that inconsistency. But nonetheless, you know, in figuring out what to do well beyond words, right? Because with the words are the easy part, part of acting morally and strategically in an ever more complex world when problems cross borders is to summon other countries to your side, to think through consequences with those other countries, to be willing to revise your judgment. I mean, this is something Obama did, um, I think, better than most leaders, and it can have some funky effects at times, but just because the expectation is that you're going to act a certain way doesn't ipso facto mean that that's the right thing to do in light of new circumstances um, and in light of new facts on the ground. So, so I don't have a, you know, a pithy bumper sticker. You know, can America be moral? We have to be more consistent, and we have to recognize our greatest strength as we call on other countries to treat their citizens differently, or as we try to employ tools in the toolbox with other countries is our credibility and our observance of those principles. All right, let, let, let's take a quick break right here and then we'll be right back. I suspect that when historians in 50 years look back at the broad sweep of this era, not Obama, but Obama and Trump and Clinton, that China is going to be the primary foreign policy story of it globally and that Clinton is sort of about bringing China into the international system. And Bush is sort of like, I think, almost a break from that. And then Obama, there's an effort to have this pivot back to Asia. And I think that it often was an effort to make sure that we retained a kind of economic and international leadership amidst the rise of China. And then with Trump, it's a turn to this confrontation with China. And something I hear sometimes from liberals is that Trump is right to see the need for a confrontational approach to China, particularly on economics, but he's just doing it badly. He's just being um, totally uh, opportunistic and incompetent in it. Do you think that we need a confrontational approach to China, or is it possible to have a kind of multipolar system with them that is more cooperative and that is somehow um, positive sum as opposed to zero sum in terms of power relations? I mean, 
for the foreseeable future, it's going to be extremely hard to achieve core U.S. interests without China's cooperation. So to have merely a policy of confrontation, even if confrontation is warranted on intellectual property or on uh, various protectionist trade maneuvers or God knows in terms of the crackdown in Hong Kong or the mass incarceration of the Uyghurs. I mean, there, there, there are so many sources of difference. And again, in a world where we will over time be seeking to differentiate our form of leadership from China's form of, of leadership, you know, some of that is rooted in really different domestic systems and different values. And, and I think that inevitably is going to bring about some confrontation. But our planet is boiling. <laughs> you know, China is the player that more than any other, really. Um, I mean, India, yes, we, yes, um, but that we need to curb its emissions. But more than that, to completely overhaul the way it thinks about its external development and infrastructure investments. I mean, right now you have China sort of parading its uh, reduced coal usage and its desire ultimately to phase out of using coal domestically as it builds coal plants as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And so, yeah, you could imagine, I guess, a confrontational, you know, let's beat up China on coal if we get our act together and, and become compliant with Paris and then stretch ourselves to go much further. Maybe, you know, there are some who think that that also is a, should be a source of confrontation, but I just don't see it. And the international system you know, has this kind of defect um, from birth, <laughs> arguably. Um, I mean, it was the only way the international system, in terms of peace and security, that it ever could have been brought into existence. So it's hard to call it a defect if it was a necessity, I suppose. But Russia, China, the United States, the United Kingdom, and France have the veto. And I know firsthand from my confrontations, for example, with the Russian ambassador, which I write about in the book, but also my working behind the scenes with the Russian ambassador, China was more recessive in my years, um, at the beginning at least, and then only in the last year plus did you really start to see them flex their muscles. But I think Russia is another good example. We, you just have to walk and chew gum at the same time. And if you go wholly in this bash China, confront China direction, you're going to leave a lot of uh, opportunities for for agreements, I think, at least in the in the near term, and you're going to leave a ton of collective security achievements, uh, necessities on the table. Because if they feel that the only thing in foreign policy that Democrats and Republicans can agree on is that China's a problem and in need of confrontation, you will see them playing spoiler more and more. And you will see them, uh, and I'm not saying if they don't see that, that they won't play spoiler. I mean, in, in certainly on human rights and humanitarian issues, I'm very worried about that anyway. But I, I think the fact of the matter is we both, you know, have profound differences with China that need to be called out where we need to find the tools that we can to try to deter them from doing things that we find that are objectionable and that are contrary to our interests. At the same time, we have to routinize cooperation 
whether on cyber, on the environment, on peace and security, it's essential. So how do we manage that amidst the need um, that you were speaking about a minute ago for more moral consistency in our foreign policy? So a couple of years ago, it seemed more possible that China was going to not become a full democracy, a, a liberal democracy in the way people hoped, but they've taken a pretty hard turn towards nationalism, um, the mass imprisonment of the Uyghurs. Things seem to be getting worse there in terms of the kinds of values that country is going to project and also in terms of the way she is going to run the political system at home. I used to have a more optimistic view of what the kind of relationship with China could look like. But as they take that turn and particularly as they're more able to take that turn because we're taking our own turn away from international and global leadership, even if we kind of move back into that position – there's going to be this real tension between the million things we need to work with them on for in everything you just said and also the kind of country they're becoming and the kinds of um, harms they're willing to inflict amidst their rise and for and as part of their kind of internal consolidation and authoritarianism. I mean, I, I don't have a some good news, happy story to tell you about <laughs> the future of the world, Ezra, but um, – uh, exactly. Nobody ever does on this show. I know. Um, but what I can say is there there has has proven in American history, and I think there is uh, a lot of room still to carve out complex, multifaceted relations, even with a major force of nature uh, like the Chinese government. And so, Again, but that gets to which tools are we even talking about? That's mm -hmm. why I don't find the language, you know, of like what is it? What does it even mean to have a moral foreign policy? I mean, right now we have a president who, you know, on occasion looks like he's even green lighting Chinese abuses and saying, "Look, what happens within their borders is their problem," and you know, sort of going back to a post-Westphalian, you know, conception of sovereignty where China gets to do all kinds of things beyond its borders in other countries. Um, but where the the U.S. posture is is not to be terribly curious about what happens behind China's borders, um, you know, within the mainland. So sometimes you hear that on on issues like Hong Kong, you know, just saying, "Look, it's a sovereign government; they can do what they want." I trust President Xi. Meanwhile, you know, President Xi is authorizing uh, at, at that very time a kind of crackdown. So you get that on the one hand, and then you get a spasm in the other direction of attention to what is going on behind the borders, but. You know, I think to exercise our voice on behalf of the international standards to, again, ensure that we are ourselves far more attentive to rights and um, to international norms and just playing by the rules ourselves in a way that we, we haven't been for the last couple of years, that's going to render us a more credible messenger in that regard. But, you know, for an outsider, you know, it's not the case that China is necessarily going to be influenced by presidential statements, but nor is it the case that a presidential statement blows up the relationship. Um, given, again, we have a tendency, especially as America transitions from an era, let's say, of domination to one of leadership to whatever we're in now, but we do have a tendency to underestimate our own leverage or to forget that every other country has a politics too and that they have their own issues and their own equities and they, they are dealing with cyber threats and they're dealing with the environmental challenges that go even beyond in terms of how their citizens are living um, that go beyond in the very near-term climate change. And so they have their own reasons for wanting to cooperate. And I'm you know again, what one can hope is that that creates room 
for multifaceted relationships that allow both confrontation on issues of difference, hopefully with an eye to resolution, um, and, and particularly ones that that lend themselves to that, which I think are more in the economic and the security sphere, unfortunately, than in the human rights sphere, but that also, you know, that there is just a role of saying what's true and saying what you believe and 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 putting that out there. On the one hand, at the same time, you know, a number of spheres are kind of carved out and that each side knows what the, what the other is doing. Now, what I did haven't liked sort of since the Clinton years on human rights and and where where what I've just said tends to go in mainstream policy circles is on any human rights issue, what a U.S. official tends to say first is, we've agreed to disagree, you know, which is a kind of feels more like a box checking exercise than any effort really to try to move the needle even at the margins on anyone's behalf. And so, you know, if I had to predict, in fact, how the human rights stand will go, that's how it's been in the past. That's probably the more likely way it would go in the future for successive executive branches. And to me, that just, it's better, I suppose, than the Trump uh, approach, which is do what you want within your borders. You know, you got to break eggs to make omelets or whatever he says on a given day, um, which really can be, I think, emboldening. And we, we can't underestimate just what America turning away from human rights abuses, you know, how that affects a calculus um, that may already be heading in one, you know, nasty direction, but can go in a worse direction. So so anything is better than that, I suppose. But, but um, there is a way in which because of Chinese sensitivity, uh, which is very real, and I lived uh, at the UN and I write about in the book when I try to champion the fate of Chinese political prisoners, female political prisoners, just how, um, you know, I was negotiating at the same time the North Korea sanctions, the toughest North Korea sanctions in 20 years. And there were moments where I, you know, th these things did seem in some tension. But I think by and large, because China needs the relationship with us, um, I think arguably more even uh, than we do, although we're very intertwined. I think the 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 complexity can, you know, I'm hopeful anyway, that the complexity um, of a, a relationship that includes both competition and confrontation on the one hand, on issues of of great difference, but also cooperation, that that kind of relationship can be forged. The other question with China is that I think that we kind of intuitively understand we're in this multipolar world with them, but there's also this return of Russia as an antagonist. And you write a lot in your book about your relationship with the uh, Russian ambassador um, in, in, in some ways seems to almost have been your central kind of frenemy. Is that maybe the right way it's to put probably, it? Probably a good in, word. In the yeah. UN. It's hard for me to know how to think about Russia as a player going forward, they've become, I think, very outsized in the American imagination because of their role potentially in our elections. But as a foreign- Potentially. <laughs> well, I think the question of whether or not they actually tip the election is an open one. That's my somewhat unpopular votes. view. That, well, I mean, if, you know, I'm not saying, I mean, the, but surely, but for, but for lots of things. The question is, but for lots of things is a hard yeah. question here. Um, anyway, my point is not to get every liberal in America mad at me on this question. <laughs> um, my point is more to say that they are, in some ways, I think, a weaker country internationally. I assume this was the Obama administration's view. Then sometimes their foreign projections and their attempt to sow chaos tends to seem like. How do you see them going forward? Like, what what should be if a Democrat gets elected in twenty twenty? What should the stance towards Russia be after all this? I think um, China and Russia often 
in the American imagination are lumped together as if China is just a, a kind of richer, more potent, so far less election interfering version of Russia. Um, uh, but more economic espionage. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. With with more intellectual property theft. But I mean, they really are very, very different insofar as, as you as you imply, China really has done quite well out of its embedding of itself in the international order, you know, the famous party line of hide your capabilities and bide your time, you know, exerting its influence on issues central to Chinese identity or Chinese foreign policy like Taiwan, then going further, this is within the UN context at least, maybe Burma, North Korea, you know, and every year getting more and more, just going a little bit further afield. But fundamentally, benefiting from being within the international system and thriving. I mean, pulling millions of people out of poverty and now being really part of a, what at least what was about to be a P2, you know, with with t- the two major countries being China and the U.S. Not clear if there's a U.S. as part of the, the, the P2 because it's not clear what U.S. leadership really is at the, at the present. But Russia... Um, you know, really has fared very differently within the international system. And I think that's at least a factor behind the approach that President Putin chose to take starting in 2013, 2014. First of all, on the Syria front, really almost in, in what seemed, I think, at times to us, almost in a paranoid way, Although, again, you know, he has his own history that he's filtering things through, I suppose. But so seeing Syria, which is so destructive to the region, so destructive to the global good, however you define it, and uh, so destructive above all to the Syrians, but so determined to to maintain Russia's foothold and so alarmed that any change, you know, in the leadership in Syria would would bring about a, a you know a, a, a diminution of what's left of Russia's influence in the region. So that last foothold. So seeing them, you know, again filter the Syria conflict through what about us and our interests and our equities in this and this kind of last port uh, and and military base that we maintain, and then seeing them domestically, you know, with a, a struggling economy even before economic sanctions were imposed, an aging population, you know, the environmental challenges, the domestic sort of unease. And then Putin, though, tapping into something profoundly salient, I guess, in 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 uh, among many in the Russian population, which was a sense of kind of being left on their knees, you know, in the wake of the Cold War and a, and a sense that the West, and particularly the United States, had been triumphalist and had not recognized Russian and was had ceased to recognize Russian greatness and kind of acting up in a range of ways, taking territory, which is more than acting up. It's not just about getting attention. It's about making Russia larger um, from Putin's standpoint, but really sort of drumming up support and and flouting the international rules by which you know, had they played by, then they wouldn't have been able to do this. You know, this other, take this other set of steps. Um, but no satisfaction with the status quo or with the status quo projected forward, with a with a with a belief that you've just got to sort of disrupt the envelope of the world in order to kind of shake things up and get your seat back at the table. 
and be treated, you know, even if you're now a spoiler and not um, in any way helping shepherd the international system towards stability, spoilers get attention, you know, and there's leverage in being a spoiler. And that's where Putin sought his leverage, whereas China, I think, continues to seek and, and obtain and amass and cash out on its leverage through the exercise of its economic heft. You served with Vice President Joe Biden. And I've been trying to think, as he's been the front runner for the nomination, how to characterize his foreign policy. He, I mean, I think what people remember about him is at this point he was for the Iraq war. I mean, criticized its execution and so on, but had voted for the authorization. But then, as I've read Obama administration memoirs, was against the Libya operation, was against adding troops into Afghanistan, often played a more restrained role in terms of internal debates. How would you characterize Joe Biden's foreign policy? What what should voters think is the way he thinks about the world? I mean, you know, I would say just he would start, I think, with first principles that never would have been part of anybody's um, foreign policy script because they would have seen so common sense, but but now really have to be stated and have to be, and it's going to take a huge amount of work to pursue. So start with, I think he would start with the strength of our democracy at home, again, as a foundation for our leadership internationally, set forth to rebuild the alliances that have been shattered. Um, and and I think, again, consistent with some of what I've been arguing, would believe that our values are at home, but also promoting them internationally. And promote is a vague word. And, you know, again, it I, I think it can take many forms, but um, but with an emphasis, I think, on diplomacy and on the softer tools in the toolbox, uh, but promoting human rights and and speaking out on behalf of of peoples who are seeing increasingly their freedoms restricted around the world or, or crackdowns happening. Um, and so a huge amount of recovery, I think, would be part of it. And I know that's, um, you know, for, for given his vulnerability as being seen to be old school. Recovery is not what people are looking for right now, but that's a foundation, right, for all else. And then I think you do put your finger on an evolution in Joe Biden, and I witnessed it because when I was a cup reporter in Bosnia, as I write, he was very hawkish in pressing the Clinton administration um, to use force and I think was also very influenced by how NATO's intervention went and how it did bring the war to an end very quickly and did offer rescue to to several million people. I think that helped shape his view and probably did play some role in um, what he now says, of course, was the the wrong posture on on invading Iraq, what was the wrong posture on invading Iraq. Um, but post-Iraq, I think a real awareness you know, maybe by having Bo in 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 harm's way for for you know on his in his Iraq tours, but also getting to know so many soldiers and visiting our troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, but but such an awareness of the toll um, that conflict takes on our military, on their families, and such an awareness borne out by the record or the the results, such as they are in Iraq and Afghanistan, just about the limits of what you can achieve through military force in such complex societies. So I think you'd see a major emphasis on diplomacy, but not a not a retreat. I mean, a great comfort with a catalytic U.S. leadership role, but just not a conflation of U.S. leadership with using military force. 
At the end of A Problem from Hell, uh, you have this quote from George Bernard Shaw that all progress has depended on unreasonable men because reasonable men adapt to the world as it is and the unreasonable men thus are the only ones who can change it. And I'm paraphrasing the quote. Um, And you sort of say that America has to become more unreasonable, at least when it comes to, to genocide. And there's this interesting tension in this conversation between that you need to be reasonable and pragmatic in foreign policy and unreasonable um, in sort of your moral approach to it. And I'm curious, sorry, you're shaking your head at me. I, I, no, go on. I'm not trying to do a gotcha. I'm actually, yeah. I actually think the thing I've been trying to like explore here is the idea that both of these things seem compelling. So like, I'll just read the quote and you can just tell me sort of how you put it together. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. After a century of doing so little to prevent, suppress, and punish genocide, Americans must join and thereby legitimate the ranks of the unreasonable. Is there any tension in that or no? Like we can have a reasonable foreign policy that is also kind of unreasonable in its moral approach. Well, I think what I'm trying to get at there is there are a huge number of impediments to making change, however you define the change that you're pursuing. And you, you've wanted to focus this conversation a lot on genocide and mass atrocities. The book I've just written is really about foreign policy and human rights, which include, of course, responding to the worst crimes around the world, but also trying to get political prisoners out of jail, trying to ensure we're not giving military assistance to abusive regimes that are using our assistance to do bad things to their people. I mean, just, again, issues that don't summon quickly questions of coercive power of 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 military kind, which, uh, again, in such rare circumstances, I think are going to make things better. But the reason that I wrote the book, The Education of an Idealist, and my answer is I'm more idealistic on the back end, is I've just seen people not accept the odds that they're facing. So, uh, and whether that's people pursuing democratic change in Tunisia, or whether that's young people today who just refuse to accept uh, that half of our country doesn't want to believe that climate change exists, and or or young people who refuse to accept just years of thoughts and prayers in in response to to gun violence. My, my the idea of unreasonableness is that you see that the odds may seem stacked against you. Like the Supreme Court just made, you know, one of the worst decisions in its history on gerrymandering. The political polarization in our country, which is sort of at the root of so much of what ails us, has just been given, um, you know, a fist bump from the highest court in the land. I mean, that's, that's, that's a horrible thing. So what do we do? Do we just accept like, well, we're never going to be able to deal with political polarization because, you know, there's profit in polarization and echo chambers and you know how it, how are the tech companies ever going to be able to navigate questions of truth and falsehood and and i mean there's so many hard dimensions of fixing what's broken and on one level if you look at the odds and how hard each of these issues is or the rise of china and what that foretells you know for aspects of uh, the question of freedom around the world as a as a net proposition Man, I mean, those, those are some daunting odds, but the the plea for unreasonableness is to ignore all of that and 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 to 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 choose one's own battle, whatever that is on a given day, whether it's completely local uh, in one's own community or it's big and global in its scope. But one of the the sort of conclusions of my education that I read in the book is 
uh, can sound a little bit, um, you know, kind of conciliatory or, or, or chastened, but is the idea of shrink the change, you know, where you don't, just because the problems are big, you don't yourself feel as if you have to come up with the big solution, but you can slice off, you know, some small dimension of it, even in the face, again, of a knowledge of how quickly the planet is trending in a bad direction in terms of global warning or warming or how many refugees are displaced and you might be helping just tutor one one Syrian, you know, in your neighborhood that can feel so small. But that's really the appeal is just it's sort of the classic sort of don't accept the world as it is, but but strive because no change has ever come if reason alone or if one's forecast on probabilities sort of defines whether one gets up in the morning and, and out in the streets. Now let me ask you the question we used to end the show, which is, what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Um, well, I got the shrink the change idea. It's definitely not mine, so I'm glad you asked, lest I um, uh, not give credit where credit is due. Um, but uh, from the Heath brothers who wrote a book called Switch, I think the subtitle is something like Making Change When Change is Hard. They both have that concept of, you know, thinking in terms of hiving off small dimensions of a problem. And it's kind of countercultural right now because we're in a, a very ambitious and almost sometimes it feels revolutionary moment. But I think there's so much in the story they tell and the examples they offer in the book that I found incredibly influential. I, as I write in the book, I I, uh, I bought dozens of copies and was passing it around to everybody. And they also, and this really matters for today, they they talk in terms of the very conventional concept that we all know of bright spots, but about how when you're trying to solve public policy dilemmas, you tend to say, you know, okay, why is malnutrition so terrible in this Vietnamese village or in, you know, inner city and, in, you know, in, in, in one of our communities in this country? And when you, when you ask the question around the problem, you end up just often disappearing into a vortex and, and quickly ending up in despair. But if in a community in rural Vietnam that is that does suffer malnutrition, you ask, who is not malnourished? And then you unpack, what is it that those parents are doing or what's different about the regimen and that the lessons can kind of come in that way. And I use that on so many... Um, human rights challenges where the temptation is, why are they abusing their people? And it's like, wait, why is that governor, what, you know, what is it about his road to office or his constituency that makes him act differently vis-a-vis -vis the press? Um, and, and, you know, what can be scaled out of that? So anyway, that's one book is Switch. Certainly a foundational book for me. And I, I, I write about some of the books that influenced me in, in the memoir, but was in my 20s having visited Anne Frank's house first in Amsterdam and then going with my college boyfriend uh, as we were traveling around Eastern Europe, but first stopping in Germany and going to Dachau. And sort of even though I had known in broad strokes about you know the U.S. role in World War II, the heroic role ultimately, but also um, you know, the domestic debate about what to do and particularly on the question of how many refugees, Jewish refugees to let in, but going to Dachau and seeing the exhibits, the first exhibit I ever saw in the St. Louis and the idea that people were turned away and turned back to their deaths. Um, so a book I came home and read not that long thereafter uh, was David Wyman's The Abandonment of the Jews. 
And um, again, just thinking similarly of the toolbox, I mean, the, the best way to end the Holocaust was to defeat Hitler. And, you know, after 1941, that campaign was in train. But notwithstanding that, there were still a whole set of things that might have been done um, alongside, you know, the strategic national objective of winning the war and and ending everything about Hitler's reign. So that was very influential. And then probably just as a as a woman reading Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own, and um, just the kind of counterfactual of what if Shakespeare had a sister and thinking about achieving one's independence. I mean, the privilege of of growing up the way I've, I've been able to grow up in this country. I write in the book, the first scene of the book, in fact, is my mother in an Irish courtroom uh, where I spent the first um, part of my life till I was nine, but she trying to get custody of me and the judge saying, what right has this woman to be so educated? Um, basically, why is this woman coming to me and trying to get custody of, of these kids and trying to go off and pursue her medical career? And you know, my mother just got on his nerves by by having the a PhD in biochemistry and by wanting to pursue her medical education further and deeper and then having the ambition to go off to to America. And so I grew up with that story and that image so much in my mind. Um, and then reading Virginia Woolf and and of course remembering uh, more, you know nearly a hundred years again now, but even more, trying times for women, but just but just knowing that now in having a voice, um, you know, I think we we also have a responsibility and just just trying to use that privilege. Samantha Power, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. Thank you to Samantha Power for being here. If you enjoyed the episode or you enjoy other episodes, please either send the show to a friend or rate it on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, I guess it's called now. That is how we grow. And I'm always grateful if you just take a moment and do that. Uh, thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing to Roger Karma for researching. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. And as always, my email is ezrakleinshow at vox.com. Hold up. 